this time I'd invite you to turn to your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 3. There we will read and consider verses 7 through 12. And just give you a little bit of an idea of of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus has just been in the synagogue and he, uh, as a challenge to the Pharisees, uh, healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. Uh, and that did not sit well with the Pharisees. Uh, they held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as a result, uh, how to destroy him. And so now we come to verse 7. Now hear the word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. As far as our reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, and may he add his blessing to the preaching thereof. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if uh, you were holding a, a wet sponge and you squeezed it, what would happen to it? You might be thinking, well, that's kind of a silly question. The answer is pretty obvious. All the water is going to come gushing out. That's because the pressure as applied by your hand upon that sponge, uh, forces what was on the inside uh, to come out. That's basic physics, uh, and we see it demonstrated probably almost every day as we are around the kitchen and dealing with dirty dishes and whatnot. Now, when it comes to life, there are pressures that do a similar thing, uh, but to us, and to our hearts, and to our souls. Pressures that make the contents which are on the inside come spilling out. These pressures can be the responsibilities that we have in life, the commitments that we've made, the deadlines that we have to meet, and all of the stress that comes by it. It's constant grind and pressures that we face in this life. Now sometimes, in addition to that pressure, uh, the hand of God's providence lies heavy upon us. Things like an unexpected crisis, a tragedy, 
grief, the death of a loved one, the disease that you did not see coming. And the list can go on there. And what they do is they put pressure upon us in heart and soul. And these are things which we've all faced from time to time and uh, sometimes more than others. And so the question that we must ask ourselves at this time uh, is how do we handle pressure? you handle it well or not so well? Well, we can answer that by asking another question. What comes pouring out of you when these pressures come upon you? Is it humility? Is it prayer? Is it trust? Is it dependence upon God and upon one another? Or as it is often the case, is it impatience, anger, selfishness, frustration? Maybe you worry and fret and pace back and forth. Maybe you just want to curl up into a little ball and wait for it to all blow over and pretend it doesn't exist. Well, verse 10 of our text tells us uh, that the multitude pressed upon Jesus. And so he too, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, faced uh, great pressures. And uh, what we see come pouring out of his heart in this text uh, when he faces these pressures uh, is the greatness of his compassion and of his mercy toward those uh, who are in need towards sinners like you and me. Uh, And we see also great wisdom that he has, great fortitude and determination uh, to fulfill what it is that he had come to do. Uh, And so this evening we will consider this text under the title, Jesus Deals with Pressures. Uh, And we have two points under which we will consider this, which I believe you have in your bulletins. The first is uh, the pressures of opposition that Jesus faces. And under that, we'll see that there's opposition from Pharisees and there's demonic opposition. And the second point is the pressures of need. And we see that there's a a numerous amount of need uh, as well as weighty needs, deep needs that are present there. Uh, And so first, considering the pressures uh, of opposition, and the first pressure of opposition uh, comes from the Pharisees. Uh, And this is something that comes really more from the context of this passage. Uh, We read in verse 7 of Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to the sea. And the reason uh, is because Uh, Mark has just finished highlighting uh, five different clashes that Jesus has had with the Pharisees uh, back to back, uh, one after the other that are going on. Uh, And each of these clashes and of these interactions, 
fuel their hatred for Jesus and evidence a greater and greater divide between him and them. And it's building on top of each other uh, so that their hatred grows and grows and grows to the point where we get to verse 6, that the Pharisees hold counsel uh, with the Herodians for how they might destroy Jesus. So in other words, we are at the pinnacle or the mountaintop, at least at this point in the gospel of the opposition that's coming against Jesus from the Pharisees. And we can't ignore that context. And just to highlight how deep and how intense this opposition was, uh, we take note of the fact that it was the Pharisees that took counsel with the Herodians, as verse 6 says. We don't really know a whole lot about these Herodian folk, but what we do know is that as supporters of Rome, the Herodians, they stood for everything that the Pharisees hated. Uh, and so they would not have gotten along very well. They wouldn't agree. And yet, they're at such a point where they are willing to lay aside all these differences and whatever may have sent them apart so that they together can join forces under one common goal uh, with a singular enmity against a common enemy. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the depth of the opposition. That's how far down that root of hatred and enmity goes. Doesn't matter that they were once enemies. There's a bigger enemy there. You think of the saying that uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here. And they both desire to kill the Lord. And then we read in verse 7 that Jesus' response to this is that he withdrew to the sea. He withdrew. He went away. It would seem that just after Jesus gets his first death threat and, and uh, this inkling of opposition has gotten too much, that, that he gets all scared and, and scampers away like the three stooges. Is that how our Lord Jesus deals with the pressures of opposition? And since our Lord in many ways sets for us a pattern by which we are to walk in his footsteps, is this how we too then are to face the pressures of opposition? To kind of retreat and hunker down and wait for all this to blow over? Well, the answer, of course, is no. That's not what's being taught here. We need to understand that 
Jesus understood still that he was bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He could be killed. Uh, and they did. He was crucified on the cross. Uh, but this is not a retreat of fear or of defeat. It's more of a strategic movement. Because while they were plotting and distracted with how to further, uh, further make plans of how to destroy him, uh, he carried on with the main thing that Jesus had come to do. Uh, And that main thing that Jesus had come to do wasn't to sit there and engage in debate with the Pharisees this whole time. Uh, He had already stated what that main thing was. In the previous chapter, uh, the last time he was out by the sea, uh, there he called Levi or or Matthew, the tax collector. And then right after, he feasted. Uh, with sinners and tax collectors. And in verse 17, he stated, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And earlier yet, he said, let us go into the other towns that I may preach. For that is why I have come. And so, while the opposition is busy opposing him, this isn't a retreat. It's an opportunity for him to continue on in the main thing for which he has come to do, uh, which is to have mercy upon sinners in need. And so we learn from this. Uh, Jesus is not intimidated, nor is he deterred by this opposition. Uh, As fierce as it may come, even though it may risk his own life, as they indeed have threatened it, and as it would ultimately come to that at the end, as he was crucified. But nevertheless, he continued forth in this. And we also learn from Jesus that he's not distracted. He's not distracted by this opposition to lose focus upon the main thing. He certainly has an eye on the opposition. He never forgets that they're around And we'll see, uh, if you read on and continue on through not only Mark, but in all of the other Gospels too, that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are our main opponents throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. But uh, nevertheless, whenever they throw at him, it doesn't throw Jesus off course. And it doesn't bring an imbalance to his time, to his ministry, to his focus, to his effort. His focus is upon the main thing. And the opportunity it presented itself, he jumped on that and he went by the sea to where the people were going to be and there he would be able to demonstrate his mercy upon them. That is his focus. The salvation of sinners by grace through faith in him crucified. 
He had his face set like a flint. That's what Isaiah says. It means it was a, an unwavering resolve to fulfill what it is that he had come to do. No matter how much pressure was put on him, no matter how fierce that pressure was, and that is the pattern we are called to imitate. I'm not going out and performing miracles or anything of, uh, that Jesus did here. That is no longer a gift given to the church, seeing that we have the complete Word of God. Uh, yet we are to keep our eye on the main thing. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation uh, of sinners by grace through faith. And especially even as we live in this world which is so opposed in so many ways to the gospel, to the Lord himself ultimately, and therefore to you and me, uh, how much more do we need to be those not intimidated? But we also have our eyes, our gaze fixed upon the Lord, upon His will, upon His grace. And may that be a matter by which you all examine yourselves this week. And considering the fact that a part of that self-examination is whether we endeavor this day forth to live uh, in sincerity and thankfulness unto God. Where there is opposition that's watching. Opposition that can very often intimidate us, cause us to falter. Very often have we had a situation where the godly thing that we were called to do means rejection from somebody, a friend or a co-worker. Or maybe it will mean that life is going to be more difficult for us, at least outwardly. Fear, perhaps, of explicitly stating the gospel and sharing that or calling a friend out of some behavior for fear of what they might think of us. Now, often the times we get distracted by the opposition to make us lose focus upon our Lord, lose focus upon our calling in this world as God's people, and makes us to forget, or at least not focus upon the main thing. And sometimes we find ourselves to have an imbalance. We face this pressure of opposition and a focus not being so clearly on the Lord is oftentimes utilized in a crafty way by that second opposing pressure that we read of in our text. A second opposing pressure is in verse 11 and 12. It comes from those unclean spirits. Now, these unclean spirits, we see in verse 11, state something that is true. You are the Son of God, they say. 
That's a true statement. So it might make us to wonder, how is that opposition? Isn't that helping the cause? Isn't this part of what Jesus had come to do to reveal that? And so why does Jesus then sternly warn them to not make himself known? And this has been an area of much discussion amongst theologians and pastors and commentaries. Uh, and one reason given is because Jesus is the one who is to reveal himself. He does it on his terms. He does it in his way and in his timing. It's not for them. It's for Jesus to do as the Son of God. Uh, but another reason... Uh, is because of the fact that the ones that are saying it are unclean. It's unclean spirits that are saying it, and so there must be something unclean about it, or about why it is that they are stating this in such a, a loud and in a public way. Unclean spirits are, are, are demons. They're demonic they're evil spirits. And the fact of the matter is, is that part of the message comes from the messenger himself. And so a statement to come from them and gone unchecked uh, would consequently uh, in the people's minds associate Christ's claims to the title Son of God. They would associate it with the demonic. And ultimately, that would color the entire person and work of Jesus Christ and the message that he preached as diabolical. You read on later in the chapter, you see how the Pharisees fell prey to this, attributing to the devil, the works of Jesus. Uh, and so what we see here is an attempt to undermine, to disrupt Jesus, his mission, is to gain control of the perception of Jesus and of the gospel he preached. But Jesus doesn't get fooled. He wisely perceives this opposition even when it's subtle even when it's not so easy to spot. That's one thing that we learn here, is that opposition that comes against the people of God, against the body of Christ, isn't always so obvious. It's not obvious like a death threat. That's pretty blatant and out there. This opposition can be very deceptive. Can weasel its way in through something that is true or partly true. The devil can appear as an angel of light, the Bible says, which means that it looks good and it seems good, it sounds right, and yet it's not. Now we see Jesus give an authoritative word to silence them. And we too 
must go to his word, his authoritative word, prayerfully, regularly, as our only authority for doctrine and life, that we may be those that are wise and discerning, that we may be strengthened and nourished for whatever pressures may come our way. Because not all pressure is from opposition. That's a big factor, but there are pressures of other sorts. Our second point, the pressures of need. Pressures of need. There are many needs that arise, which we see with this crowd that uh, is coming here. Uh, And it's really the bulk of the section of these verses here. Uh, Now, this is probably the largest uh, gathering, the group of people that Jesus had encountered thus far. Uh, And uh, boys and girls, if you have a a map of the Bible and of the cities during Bible times, I would encourage you maybe tonight or uh, with family devotions to open that along with this passage Uh, together with your family, uh, and uh, take note of all of those places that are mentioned here, uh, and just trace where they're located. All right, now Jesus is uh, near the Sea of Galilee, uh, and we read of these people coming uh, from Galilee, but then also Judea and Jerusalem, a little farther yet, and then Idumea, even beyond the Jordan and Tyre and and Sidon. Uh, And so you see that they're coming from far away and and from uh, every which direction. Uh, And so this isn't some local gathering anymore. This is uh, maybe a regional gathering or uh, of a national or international flavor. Uh, And with that, you get a greater number of people, but you also get a a greater number of the kinds of people that are going to be there with different backgrounds, different kinds of families, different customs, even different languages. Uh, And they're all coming to him uh, because uh, they heard uh, of what great things that he has done. The text here says the great crowd had heard all that he was doing. Uh, Another way by which uh, you can translate that text, this is also a legitimate translation, but another way is uh, what great things that he has done. So a great crowd uh, from all over uh, has heard of the great things uh, that this great Savior has has been doing. The things of God, it cannot be hidden. And it's spreading around here like wildfire uh, and and, and flocks together to this point. And all of these people uh, are coming uh, because they add many, many afflictions. Verse 10, we read of that. It's a very broad term. Cover any number of things. And so it's telling us that they had all kinds of afflictions from all over the area. 
from all different kinds of peoples. Uh, Afflictions which would have been very evident to the eye. It would have been obvious that those who had come to be healed had come to be healed. You could see the affliction. And what they did then is that they desperately tried to get to him means that there was a sense of their own awareness of their need that they have to be healed. It says they pressed about him in verse 10, uh, which means that they were basically climbing over each other, just trying to touch him, to be healed. And so Jesus here is, is overwhelmed with need. And not in the sense that he has reached his limit, uh, but in the sense of, of just the, the sheer number of people, uh, and of all the various kinds of people, uh, with the kinds of afflictions, all just clamoring for him, wanting him badly, and that out of their desperate need. And so there is a pressure that comes to Jesus, uh, just pressures of number, pressures of different things, pressures of desperation, pressures from all sides. And and what do we read of Jesus doing in the midst of this in response to it? He healed many. He healed many. He had just gotten a death threat. And here... The greatest crowd comes with a great number of issues to a great Savior who does great things for people who have great need. You see, what these healings are doing uh, is that it is an object lesson, as it were, of the almighty power of the Son of God uh, to deal with the root of these pressures and of these needs. Through these healings, it is to declare to us that if He can deal uh, with this fruit of sin that is in our lives, uh, which is uh, what these diseases are, it's the effects of the fall upon us, Uh, It is death working in us. Uh, And that uh, root is the sin. uh, And that is uh, manifesting in the human bodies. And so if He can heal and deal with the fruits of this sin in human bodies and heal these people, can He not also deal with that invisible root in the soul? the soul of man and the soul of you and me, and uh, to do that which is uh, that invisible transaction that's not so patently evident on the surface that a healing has been transpired, but evident uh, ultimately by a transformed life. The healing. The washing away of sin. The giving of a new heart to make a new creation. That's 
what he's demonstrating here. And that's uh, what we are being told, that he is the almighty worker and savior of body and of soul. This is the gospel. It is telling us that uh, as hideous as these diseases may have been to the eye, uh, you and I are are sinners uh, and have hideous souls by nature, stained and marred and killed by sin. And we need the Lord Jesus Christ and His almighty power to heal our soul, just as He healed these plagues and cast out these demons. And the fact of the matter is, is He can. He is able to do so. Behind all of these pressures, the great need and uh, the depth of this need behind all of the crowds climbing over each other, we see this vivid truth coming full force into our face. Our Lord is able. And our Lord is willing. Because you see, as these pressures close in, what comes pouring out of His heart is compassion and mercy and grace even to the worst of sinners. Yes, we are great sinners. But we have an even greater Savior. One that can and is able because He is gracious. He is willing to cleanse us from our sin. And forgive us. Because ultimately, these pressures which came by this opposition, by the need which arises from this, He had come to deal with the very root of it. All of this pressure was nothing in comparison uh, to that pressure uh, which He would face ultimately at the end upon the cross, the full pressure uh, of God's justice, which is so opposed to sin, uh, which is your sin, my sin, our rebellion, our opposition because of our great need. Uh, And there in in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the root of our opposition and our need was pressing down upon him with such great pressure that one of the things that was squeezed out of him, as it were, were great drops of blood. Yet he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. He dealt with pressure not just as a coping mechanism, but he dealt with it once for all. Those united to Christ and true faith, as we face opposition in this world and as we uh, face the needs that are arising in our lives and 
the various pressures that are upon us. Next week, as you partake of the Lord's Supper, you may not be able to reach out and touch the Lord Jesus Christ with your hand, but you can taste and you can see by the hand of true faith which receives Christ be strengthened and nourished for whatever the world may have thrown at us, to be strengthened and nourished to trust in God our Father, with whatever providence He sends our way, to be fed and nourished our Lord Jesus Christ is a great Savior for great sinners and gives a great salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we give you all the thanks and praise for our Lord Jesus Christ and the wonders that he has wrought. We pray that these words would be an encouragement to us, uh, even uh, a, a correction. We do ask for the forgiveness of our Lord uh, that comes by our Lord and his sacrifice for where we have erred and where we have been slack. We ask also that you would grant to us the grace of repentance uh, with a renewed zeal uh, unto love uh, and thanksgiving for the great wonders you have wrought. We pray that as we go forth, we would continue to look to you, not be distracted, uh, and to know that our Lord has dealt with the pressures and the days coming where we will be gathered in and where we will know peace perfectly. And so, Lord, we do pray, even so, come quickly. Amen. This time we turn in song, song of response, uh, number 